Hello and welcome to another episode of Contramundum. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Isker, and with me is my other host, uh, CJ Engel. Hello, CJ. How are you? I am doing very well. It is early here, and we're excited to have... Um, our, is this our first international guest? I think it is. So really? we're excited to have the other Paul on, and we're going to be talking about Constantine and Christianity at the collapse of the Roman Empire and sort of the creation, the early creation of Christendom. Uh, which uh, is very relevant today. It's always relevant um, to understand sort of the the narrative about our world and especially as secular democracy is coming under collapse and liberalism is showing its weaknesses and we need to rethink uh, the Christian past and uh, especially the role of the public sphere, the role of um, the state, the role of empires, etc. These are all relevant themes today. Uh, I think all three of us agree that liberalism is not only a failure, but it's actually coming to threaten us as Christians, particularly. So this is a very good and timely topic today. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you, gentlemen, so much for having me. It's going to be a God willing, a fun and very educational episode. Uh, this is this is a topic that is currently in the in the top of my research. Um, actually, for largely for different reasons, mostly just for interaction with Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, but. I realize it's actually very relevant for this as well. So that's why I, I reached out. So thank you. Thank you heaps for having me. Yeah. So we're, uh, I mean, a lot of this is just going to be us, us listening and, and asking mm. questions, but I, mm. I know you have a lot to talk about, so I'm going to let you mm. take most of it away. So I guess so. one of the first things is um, why, why this topic and why is it important today? Absolutely. Um, why this topic? Because in my observation of the whole Christian nationalism debacle controversy, if you will, it barely deserves the name of controversy because like one side for the most part is intelligent and is articulating themselves right. The other side, uh, bar a few respectable respectable individuals who can who are at least respectful and they can articulate themselves well and they have some level of substance, like I'm thinking Neil Shenby and uh, maybe a couple others. Apart from them, the other side is just, Oh, but my kingdom, not of this world. And and arguments and just a, a, a great lacking ability of A, the ability to make distinctions and B, um, historical retrieval and historical yeah. perspective. That is the huge one. Massive, massive, massive problem here. Um, and so I realized this as I was getting into my research on this particular topic. So I'm particularly focused at the moment um, on the study of the role of the emperors of rome and just the imperial the imperial apparatus writ large um from the time of constantine until the uh, end of the empire and at the moment i've mostly focused on constantine and theodosius ii and a little bit of the people in between but those are the main ones are focused at the moment because they're the ones who really define the stage with constantine yeah. establishing toleration for christianity and then theodosius actually establishing it as the state religion so i've mainly focused on them and they and the, the events surrounding them and the people around them, especially various church fathers, they're, they're really, really important for this issue, I think. So let's. So what was the context before Constantine? What, what was going on in the Roman Empire before Constantine, and why is he sort of a transitional figure? Yeah, sure. So Constantine in particular was very significant, um, apart from, uh, e even if he never did anything of his Edict of Toleration, the Edict of Milan in AD 313, which tolerated, which uh, announced toleration for Christianity, but also for other minor cults. So it wasn't just Christianity. Um, he, he would have been hugely significant even without that. 
because he he basically reunified the empire. So before then, um, after what was known as the Christ of the third century, basically what uh, basically what of the a lot what a good number of the American right are kind of dreaming for just mass secession um, of the South or whatever, and there's just civil conflict or what have you. That basically happened for a, for the large chunk of the third century in the Roman Empire with a split off empire. I think uh, if from if memory serves correctly, encompassing Gaul. I think Spain and Britain, and then also the Palmyrene Empire in the east, which included like Levant and a bunch of other areas. Um, amongst uh, frequent, frequent uh, changing of of the of emperors over time, and just mass chaos in general, just completely disrupted Roman culture, Roman economy, so on and so forth. Um, at the end of this, there was a system established known as the Tetrarchy, where there would actually be four co-emperors over the whole empire. Two in the east and two in the west. Um, and the two in each half would have one senior partner. He would be the Augustus, known as the Augustus, and then the, and then one below him, the Caesar. And they would manage, uh, mainly manage, I believe, one particular part of their half of the empire. And that was basically just a way of just establishing and maintaining stability in the empire. But that very quickly fell apart because then you had the Tetrarchs fighting each other, um, particularly by the time uh, with Constantine, because he eventually just reconquered the whole empire. Um, starting from his quarter or section of the empire and then just taking the whole thing for himself. So he was hugely significant because he reunited the whole empire. Um, and so that that is a, a great deal of the significance uh, behind this, where the empire at large, which included uh, by necessity the church, because, I mean, contra the whole rhetoric of, oh, well, you know, we're exiles in this world or what have you. No, we live in a civilization. And when... Roman civilization was going bonkers. Christians were affected by that too. And at, and even in that time, there was heavy per Christian persecutions during this period of the third century as well. Many martyrs, many uh, confessors who have permanent, uh, permanent maims, permanent injuries, uh, who would then also be present at the Council of Nicaea once that was called by, by Constantine. Um, and so that pre-imperial context really does define the it, it defines everything basically like just the nature of the christian empire that was to come mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. andrew do you want to sneak a question in there because i know you've been looking at constantine a little bit and uh yeah. how, does this, how does this mesh with what you're reading oh no it it, it totally does i mean I, I think that uh the background there that you give is is exactly right that i think people have this mm. A view of Rome as this kind of like monolithic thing where it was just you have this this emperor and ruling over the empire and that's always how it is and then all of a sudden one of them uh for whatever reason decides to become a Christian and then you know cynically uh does his thing to try to you know unify the empire through the church um and it usually a lot of the discussion of Constantine especially I, I'm, I'm happy you bring up you know, the context of the debates today, because like you said, they're, they're, they're lacking in historical perspective. That's a very um, charitable way to put it. But yeah, I mean, they, they, um, they, they view Constantine as just this, as this villain, um, as this bad guy who ruined the church. And it is, it, it's such a, an a historical and, and and frankly a stupid view because yeah. yeah like you are you're a christian in in this empire you can't 
you can't just pretend it doesn't exist. You can't pretend that the circumstances that you you exist within uh, do not matter, uh, and the political the political situation that you're in doesn't matter. Um, and so, yeah, the the mess of the empire that exists, especially during the persecutions of Diocletian, which I, I think you brought up, um, you know, were were the very worst. Um, and 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 it's interesting because uh, some of the reason for that is that all of the the auguries and and sacrifices and so forth stopped working for Diocletian, right? <laughs> um, so I mean, some of it is you you have to understand. Like the world is not just stuff. It's not just this materialistic world mm-hmm. that it's a, it is, there's a spiritual dimension there as well. And, mm-hmm. and the demons that were, you know, animating the Roman empire were uh, failing, were dying, were lost power. Right. Mm-hmm. And so Diocletian freaks out and he, you know, correctly concludes the reason the, the auguries and all of the, all of the uh, divination that they would do didn't work is because of the Christians, because of, uh, because of the gospel. And so he starts persecuting the church and this, you know, precipitates, I mean, it's, uh, and it's also all wrapped up in all of the political uh, trouble that existed in, in the empire, all the, all of the chaos and, and so forth. Um, and Constantine comes in and just, just looking at it, like you said, from a political perspective, he is almost like a new Octavian that, Hmm. that renews the empire that, that takes, takes the whole thing over once again, uh, unites it under, under one emperor and brings in a a tremendous degree of stability that had been lacking for, you know, more than a century. And, and so, yeah, if you, I I think you making the analogy to America and we, we, we kind of did that a little bit the last two weeks, uh, with that Michael Anton article, um, and the comparisons between America and Rome and, and the continuities and discontinuities. Uh, but there, there, there certainly is one where there's this, this instability, this chaos and, um, Constantine comes in and he, he solves a lot of problems. Mm. And, and so, yeah, you get to that point and, and now there are lots of Christians. They're not, you know, they're maybe not a majority of the population of Rome, but they're a substantial enough um, minority in in the empire that you you can't just kill all of them. You have to you have to deal with these people. And and Constantine, you know, if you believe the legend, like he he sees this sign in the sky um, and is told by this sign conquer and converts and and. His conversion, I mean, people are like, oh, it's not sincere. It's all cynical, uh, appears to be very sincere, right? He has, uh, you, you read the things he says and, and you read Eusebius um, and people are like, oh, he was a propagandist. You know, you can't take anything that Eusebius says. Who, who wasn't? Yeah, who wasn't? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Everyone, every ancient historian is. Um, but if you, even if you take what Eusebius says with a grain of salt, hmm. um, there is, it's it's unmistakable that this man uh, clearly was devoted to the church in yep. in in in, right. in a very real sense, um, and so um, that I think is just like the historical baseline that you have to start out with. That now a there's this political stability that had been lacking in Rome for a very long time that now exists, and that the church is ascendant um, as a as a you know, religious and cultural force in, in the empire and the emperor converts. And, and I mean, the other, the proof is, is, you know, largely in the pudding there that other, with the exception of course, Julian, all the Roman emperors after that 
until the end were Christian. Right. And mm. so they all, they, they all were after him. Um, it wasn't just, Oh, well, you know, he did it for cynical reasons, blah, blah, blah. I mean, even if you, even if you grant that, say, say every critic of Constantine is, um, is right. Um, all were all the rest of them faking it too. <laughs> you know, like, no, there was a yeah. very real change that, that occurred um, yeah. in, in at the very top of, of um, Roman society and Roman politics. Um, so yeah, I guess, um, you know, as far, as far as the question goes, I mean, yeah, we're, I think uh, based on you know, our conversation and, and so forth, um, you would probably make um, your, put your opinion of, of Constantine's, conversion as being sincere right is that uh yeah I yeah, yeah 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 so um I, i'm glad we're agreed there i think i think he was sincere yeah. even though he's he's still a political figure and still has to do uh political things um yeah uh but uh bearing you know bearing that in mind i, I think i think it's a, a sincere conversion uh he didn't have to there were there were very good reasons to not um and yeah. and and so you know within that context Right, you think about the church and the persecutions they they'd undergone, and now there's not only an emperor that is friendly to you, but is is a Christian now. And it's it's also interesting that you know he didn't get baptized until the end of his life. You know the yep. views on on baptism um, in the in the early churches are all we're all over the map. Yeah, I was going to mention that because yeah. the fact that he got baptized at the end of his life that is that is from the rigorist uh, position with respect to baptism yep. where because of how well they're called rigorous for a reason of like well if you mm -hmm. sin again basically you're done at least that's one articulation of it um and so they believe in or at least where you wait as long as you can ideally like the end of your life and then you get baptized mm -hmm. and you get uh or you get uh, the most sins possible uh washed away from from you um and so that does show that uh that does give some level of evidence towards the sincerity of constantine's conversion yeah. that he actually adopted not just Oh, Christians get baptized. I'm going to get baptized. Oh no, no, no. I'm going to I'm going to specifically go with what this rigorous sect does yeah. with respect to baptism. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I mean, obviously, I think I think all of us here would be like, well, that's that's the wrong view of baptism. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, <laughs> but but at the same time, it 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 points to a degree of of sincerity, like you said. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I, I I it's it's interesting because like all of this happens, and he's not. I mean, he he's not officially a member of the church which you know comes through baptism um but he is a believer right he believes and so i mean depending on what people's views of, of baptism are and so forth like he's he's in the church but not entirely he can't he he, he obviously is not uh baptized or or you know ordained as as a, a a priest or a bishop or anything like that uh but he he functions um in in a particular way like almost like a bishop um, in, in calling, um, or at least requesting, uh, these councils in order to bring unity to the church. And even, even the, the idea that this man would want unity in the church with the church to be united around doctrine and, and solve the, uh, doctrinal disputes that exist also, I think points to his sincerity. Like if he's just this cynical operator, um, and you're, you're just doing this to play politics, Right, you 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 want these divisions to exist in the church, so you can play one group off of the other. 
right? Um, you don't want there to be one uniform view. Like, I mean, that's that's just like basic politics, right? You want you want divisions in any group to exist because then you can exploit and manipulate those. And the fact that he didn't want that points to no, like he was legit, right? He he wanted he wanted the good of the church. Um, so you know, do you agree with that, uh, or is that uh, Am I am I reading too much into it? Because maybe people like listening to this would be critical and be like, no, no, he's trying to dominate the church and and shape it and is the way that he wants, you know. No, no, I largely do agree. Um, especially because you don't go along with the very common conflation of the edict of toleration with the edict of uh well, the ch- the church being the official religion of the empire. Yeah. Because that yeah. that wasn't Constantine, that was Theodosius II decades yeah. later. Um yeah. And so Constantine, he he only uh, officiated toleration for Christianity and other, again, other minor cults, which a lot of people don't know about. If they just, which they would, they just read the actual edict of, you know, primary sources. <laughs> so difficult. Um, but um, but with with his actions with the church, with the uh, with the councils, you're right. He also he was not a domineering figure. He he acted. He acted basically as a chairman of the board in, in a large mm-hmm. respect. A little, a little bit more power than that, but otherwise, in that kind of a thing, he wasn't quite like an emperor when he was interacting with the church because he did do things like he called councils. So a lot of people think of the first ecumenical council of Nicaea, but actually, he called one. A lot of people don't know this. He actually called one earlier than that, mm-hmm. um, just one year after the Edict of Toleration in three fourteen, known as the Council of Arles, which was specifically a representative council of the Western Church. And dealt with a number of issues, including and especially the the Donatist issue, mm-hmm. and it ruled against them. Um, but what happened was uh, the emperor he the emperor may or may not um, interact with the councils and try to give his own take or what have you. This this especially happened in the fifth ecumenical council, where I believe it was Justinian. He just straight up said, "Hey, Vigilius is a heretic. Reject him now." And then they're like, yes, Emperor, we reject Virgilius, who's the Pope of Rome, by the way, and that kind of <laughs> questions the papacy, but that's a whole other topic. Um, <laughs> and so, um, but with Constantine, otherwise, uh, there's possible evidence that he did have some interaction in the in the First Ecumenical Council. I do believe um, in Eusebius's own letter from after the council to his jurisdiction in Caesarea, I think he actually says something about Constantine having a say in the inclusion of homoousios, a same substance, Christ being a same sense of a father, in the creed. So that's interesting. But otherwise, everything else we know of the council, it was bishops debating bishops, and, well, in particular with, with Athanasius debating a priest um, and or, or a deacon. Was he a priest or a deacon at the time? I forget. Um, and so it was largely an affair between the bishops and the churches, and then they voted on the matter, and then the result um, would be, then be enforced by the emperor. Like, by the, by the looks of it, um, Constantine did not per se, again, with the possible exception of the evidence from Eusebius, but, but apart from that, Constantine may not have had a massive care for the actual result of Nicaea, which way it actually voted on that major issue, and there were other issues of discussed too, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. Just that they did come to a resolution, and then whatever the resolution they came to, he would enforce it across the church throughout the empire. That was his concern. So... He wasn't this dictatorial guy. Hey, I just dropped my phone. Whoops. Hey, <laughs> enforce this doctrine of homoousios. Say it right now. Say Christ is God. Or yeah. hey, only celebrate, only celebrate the 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 Paschal feast on 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 after the vernal equinox right now. Only on that day. <laughs> he didn't do yeah. that. No, he let them yeah. 
they largely let the church resolve that for themselves. But then once they made that decision in a council, then he would be, okay, we're, we're enforcing this. Uh, and Theodosius II would take that to the next level. And I'll, and I'll definitely mm -hmm. talk a bit more about him soon. Oh, let me, I want to ask this. Um, why Christianity? What was happening in paganism? Like, why was paganism collapsing? And, and why was Christianity? Um, I know I know this gets, you know, into the grassroots thing, but this is going to lead into it because we're going to talk about the patristic support um, for some of these decisions. So so why Christianity? What was happening to the cult of Rome at the time? Yeah, well, that area, that particular issue of the nature of the Roman cult of that period is not as much in my area of reading, but I do have a little bit of an idea. Um, importantly, by this time, Christianity was growing and it was growing to the point where you would actually have officials in the Roman court at the time of Constantine and before who were Christians. So one of the big examples would be uh, Lactantius. He wrote, um, he, he actually wrote something, it's had the, the institutes of something, or like the divine institutes, whatever, basically a, mm -hmm. a, a summary of the Christian religion. And he, he is a contemporary uh, of the Nicene Fathers and Constantine, what have you. And he was in the Roman court, and he was in the Roman court um, alongside, what's his name? I think Porphyry. I think, I think it was Porphyry, pagan philosopher and a massive, massive critic of Christianity. He wrote an entire work. The, most of it's lost, but we have fragments preserved of it. Um, but we do even see with these pagan critics, like we have, we have Celsus back in the, I, I think that work actually came from the late second century. Um, but then Porphyry himself in either the late fourth, uh, sorry, no, late third or early fourth uh, century mm. is when he wrote his major work against Christianity. And so it was definitely being perceived by the Roman, Roman establishment by then that Christianity it was fast growing. It was a fast growing force. It just refused to die despite all the eyes they were cutting out, all the hands they were cutting off, all the all the nerve endings they were searing. Uh, it just kept growing. It kept exploding. And to the point where there were people in the military, in the in the imperial government itself, that were Christian. And so um, I believe that's probably the reason why Constantine himself um, would uh, would gain interest in Christianity. And I think if I'm not mistaken, this might have been just a misreading. I'm not sure. I think his mum, his his mother Helen, uh, was a Christian. If I'm not mistaken, uh, I'm not 100 certain. But if I'm remembering that correctly, then that would definitely be another major reason why he was interested in that. Um, yeah. Okay. Let Let's. I want to talk a little bit about um, the the role of the the patristics. You know, the church. Yeah. What role did the church fathers play in? Um, supporting the idea of uh, Christianity as a, as a public endeavor. Mm, massive. It was just, it was just assumed. And that's one of the, that's one of the big first things I'll throw out as just a, a perfect textbook example of a complete lack of historical perspective by the anti-Christian nationalist side, where they just assume like, like countless other people in other debates they just assume that their position is just a, a natural default. Like, oh, well, religion is a matter of individuals. Uh, and it's about individuals genuinely converting for rational, perfect rational reasons unto the faith. Right. Um, and it's not a matter of public enforcement by the state. And the state has no right to interfere in the religious affairs of the church and what have you. Mm -hmm. They assume that as a default thing. But, of course, if you're a historian, you know that's wrong. You can trace these ideas back to particular historical figures and particular writings from them, which you can often trace to a particular year, month, and day. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, so we know for a fact that it, just to take that as a default, that's 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 something if you come across like presuppositional apologetics, whether you agree with it or not, that's a really good thing they emphasize that there's no such thing as just this mere neutral playing field. Everything is layered on presuppositions and that classical liberal system uh, or as I like to call it, classical libtard system is, is <laughs> a set of presuppositions. And I say that because I used to be that myself and looking in retrospect, yeah. it was utterly disastrous. Uh, it, it, mm -hmm. it completely it gives you such an arrogance that you cannot process other historical periods outside of the 21st century West. It is that bad on your thinking. But in any case, um, you uh, it's, it's demonstrable, therefore, that classical liberal thought is a system of presuppositions, not just a default. And mm -hmm. so once you look back at these earlier Christians, you don't even have to go all the way back to the church fathers. You can just literally go back like one or two centuries ago right. not even yeah. um yeah and yeah. and of course go back to go back to my boys because i'm an anglican myself go back to the anglican divines and they they talk all about this stuff uh a lot so i there's actually one cool paragraph that uh from the anglican bishop uh john jewell 16th century mm -hmm. um his work uh, the apology of the church of england very very influential work for the post-reformation church of england and in this one paragraph, he writes this about the magistrate. And he just takes it as, as granted. He says, we give our magistrates no further liberty than what we find is their due by the word of God and what the practice and example of the best governed commonwealths have confirmed. For besides that care of both tables is committed to a Christian prince by God, that he may understand that all affairs as well ecclesiastical as civil come under his cognizance. Besides, that God doth often and strictly command the king to cut down the groves, to beat graven images to powder, and to break down the altars, and to write him a copy of the law in a book. And besides that, Isaiah tells us that kings should be nursing fathers of the church. I say besides all these things, it is evident from the histories and examples of best times that pious princes ever thought the administration of ecclesiastical affairs a part of their duty. So, goes absolutely hard. 10 out of 10, become an Anglican now. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> and so this just betrays a worldview where this is just this is just something that's assumed. Now, granted, he's arguing here specifically against the Romanists who have they're, they're not they're not classical liberals. Where no religion is not a matter of the state. Um, they 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 actually grant that the state must enforce the precepts of uh, the church. They they grant that there's actually common ground between them. But what Jules particularly arguing is against the Romanist idea, which you you will see in integralism. Uh, of their particular articulation of the spiritual having priority over the temporal. So in, in that case mm -hmm. where the Pope quite literally had power over emperors and kings and whatnot, mm -hmm. uh, and, and that kings themselves actually did have somewhat of an autonomous right or semi-autonomous right to correct the church and correct worship in the churches in their areas. Um, and, of course, he speaks that this is just something that is confirmed throughout history, and he's absolutely right because we look at mm -hmm. that in the early church, and, that, and that's my big project uh, in my current uh, my big current project in apologetics with Rome in the East is to demonstrate that, well, no, the early church wasn't this thing of like, oh, look, we have this incredible, all-encompassing, infallible ecclesiastical magisterium and, and pope and councils that just infallibly made everything so clear for us. Um, no, that was the work of the emperors. And stability mm -hmm. was brought about not by the common acceptance of this abstract, oh, look, this right. abstract, infallible thing said something, therefore we follow it. No, people, if people disagreed in the church, bishops, sects or whatever, 
um, they, they, they wouldn't care what council would say whatever. What practically brought stability was the emperors and right. kings yeah. and magistrates and so on and so forth. Them bringing the sword actually brought about this thing. And so moving back to the church fathers again, um, they, they are all on board with this for the most part. Um, I haven't, so far, I haven't read like all the church fathers. So if there's one or so out there who's like, no, the emperor's, uh, the emperor should not at all be involved in the uh, the affairs of the church. I think Hilary of Poitiers, fourth uh, century. I think he does speak about the issues of what is the nature of the emperor's role in the in the Christian religion. But at minimum, the fact that Constantine he calls a council, three hundred plus bishops show up. Theodosius does the same, and, and even between then, numerous other councils are called by emperors, um, and and after them as well. It's just, they just take it for granted. Like, okay, an emperor is calling a council for the church to kind of solve an issue between us. Let's let's go ahead and do it. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty much just assumed. Like the first time that happened, like once Constantine said, hey, let's go for a council at Ankara. Oh, oh wait, no, let's actually go gather at Nicaea. Um, mm-hmm. just kind of, they just kind of rolled with it. Um, yeah, there's... And, there's yeah. So, I mean, what you're saying is, uh, and this is a good point, I haven't thought of this before. You know, people have this conception of Constantine basically as a politician declaring Christianity um, to be like the new cult of the empire or whatever. Uh, but when mm-hmm. he does call a council, over 300 bishops do comply, comply with this. They know, there's no objection. I mean, there's perhaps some objective, some obscure objections, but for the most part, this is a total normal way of involving religion within you know, the public interest. And yeah. that's what's going yeah. on. And, and it's oh sorry Andrew go ahead yeah and well and and I think the other thing to bear in mind is that I mean part of it you have to understand like the ecclesiastical structure of of the church in this time is that all the all of these major cities had bishops right so they're that's the leading religious figure um, mm-hmm. in whatever city and they're they're all somewhat autonomous um they aren't there isn't there isn't a papacy that is you know has this you know rigid hierarchy top down instructing them and, yeah yeah like it is it, that doesn't exist it's the these bishops you know operate you know in, in a fairly autonomous way and and they come they don't just come from like one part they don't just come from asia minor to nicaea they come from all over the empire mm-hmm. um i mean it really is an ecumenical council like the the, I mean, the word ecumenical comes from oikumene, right? It, it, from and which is just the the Greco-Roman world, the way the Bible yeah. uses it. And yeah. so it it's it is a truly ecumenical council where it represents all of the the bishops, all of the major cities that uh, the church exists in, all throughout the empire. And and so it isn't like oh they they stacked the deck and they they gathered, you know, the people that would, would vote a certain way. It, it, mm-hmm. it is representative of the entire church. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely correct. And, and looking at individual church fathers themselves. Um, and this is something I'm still currently moving on with the reading of, but I've already found some absolutely fantastic gems, uh, even, even pre-empire um, where the, there's the issue of the, the state's involvement in the church. Um, and then that, that is distinct from the issue of, the this uh, of the state enforcing quote unquote Christian morality, whether the state must en- enforce more particularities of Christian morality, or if it just only has the right to enforce the bare the the the, the bare minimums of like natural law or whatever, according to anti-Christian nationalists. Which I asked, like, well, what's the 
what by what basis do you know what is like even what even is natural law do you realize we have a standard that tells us what is natural law do you realize that god in leviticus 18 tells us that the nations were thrown out of their land their lands because men did stuff with other men but anyway going on um (laughs) we what we see with these church fathers is that there is a complete uh, one thing i have found is there is a complete absence of this classical libtard idea of a separation of the state from public morality and public religion um as as well as as well as the idea of a separation of of christian morality of the law of god from a natural law that alone should be enforced that is completely absent this is something we can see even in the commentary pre pre nicene commentary of origin in his commentary on romans where uh, he's specifically commenting on romans chapter 13 the classic mm-hmm. submits the governing authorities um i figured that was a good place to look for patristic commentaries to see their views on mm-hmm. um on the government and divine law and sure enough there's some good stuff here so on the specific verse where it says well towards the beginning where it says for there is no authority except from god origin uh says the following uh perhaps someone will say what then is even that authority that persecutes God's servants, attacks the faith, and subverts religion from God? To this we shall briefly respond. There is no one who does not know that even sight is a gift from God to us, as well as hearing and the ability to think. Well then, though we have these things from God, it nevertheless is within our authority to make use of our vision either for good things or evil things. In a similar way, we use our hearing, the movement of our hands, and the reflection of thought. And in... In this judgment of God, uh, and in this, the judgment of God is just because we misuse these things that he has given for good use, for impious and wicked service. So then all authority has also been given by God to punish those who are evil, but to praise those who are good, just as the same apostle says in what follows. But the judgment of God will be just in respect to those who govern the authority they have received in accordance with their own impieties and not in accordance with God's laws. God's laws, not yeah. the natural laws, not like what in, I don't know if you guys watch and see, have seen inspiring philosophies comments on Christian nationalism, where he's like the role of government is to protect life, liberty and property. And that's it. Um, no, according to the <laughs> pre-imperial uh, origin, not infected by the uh, by the evil Constantine, cursed be his name. <laughs> he says that a government that abuses authority its authority is one that does not follow god's laws um and what are god's laws in the christian milieu of the early church and even today well that which is laid out in the morality of holy scripture in the torah in the prophets in um in the in the new testament things which are said to just be genuinely evil and sinful things in themselves not simply covenantal things like circumcision and don't eat this food or what have you to keep yourself separate from the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, even in that pre, pre-Constantinian commentary, we have the assumption um, that the morality of the government is directly tied to religion. Um, mm-hmm. There is no strict separation. Right. Uh, you know, one of the things that we talked about too um, is that God uses means to spread the Christian religion. And it's not just strictly on individuals uh, learning about it and assenting to these propositions, but he also, he also, he actually uses human um, and social institutions in order 
to spread, uh, you know, his, you know, the advancement yeah. of the Christian religion. And so you talk about the actual empire itself being an instrument and a means, whereas today, you know, a lot of the, like the new evangelicalism will completely, they'll say like, you know, Christianity was basically off track for like 16 or 1700 years. It just yeah. didn't exist. It was only in the undergrounds. Whereas the classical understanding of its development was that, no, it was right there. It was visible <coughs> and God was mm -hmm. using an instrument. No, it's not like mm -hmm. 19th century uh, Lockean philosophy, but he did use the, <laughs> the empire as a mechanism to spread Christianity. In other words, the state functioned as God's vehicle for Christianity mm -hmm. to spread around the world. Uh, that's completely yep. unacceptable to most people today. But but talk about that. Talk about the church as an instrument or the state as an instrument. Absolutely. And you know what? I have the absolute perfect quote already lined up from that. And this is from <laughs> this is from Theodoret. So post-Constantine, ooh, uh, Theodoret's <laughs> commentary on the Psalms and specifically his commentary on Psalm chapter 2, the, the one that goes absolutely uh, absolutely hard like kiss the sun lest he be angry etc so he comments on verse 9 which says you will uh, you will tend them with an iron rod you will smash them like pottery he says this in his commentary with the roman empire that is which the prophecy of daniel refers to figuratively as iron on account of both its strength and its rigidity he will smash them like pottery of clay you see since they had declined to have uh, to have him alone as their king and declared in a loud voice we have no king but Caesar. He set Caesar over them, that is the Judeans, uh, and through the Roman army, he inflicted punishment for their impiety. If, on the other hand, you think this refers not to Jews, but to nations, you should interpret it in this way. He will tend the nations with an iron rod, his strong and rigid kingship, and he will smash them like pottery, unmaking and reshaping them through the bath of rebirth and making them firm through the fire of the spirit. So here you have the Roman Empire as an instrument um to israel uh in in that time of the destruction of the temple uh and likely also to the rest of the nations in the rest of this commentary uh acting as that instrument of reshaping the nations as a whole for christ because once again there is no concept of a separation um between religion and matters of the state religion is a concern of the state and yeah and of course, you have again the anti-Sanders will say, "Oh, but of course, this is post-Constantine. It was affected by them." All you need to say to them is, "That's an assertion. Prove it." History is a matter of cause and effect. You can't just assume that. Oh. Prove that the idea of religion being a concern of the state, however, however high or low, prove that this originated with Constantine or whoever around him, and that this infected the church as a novelty and wasn't something that was existing in attitudes. That's that's an assertion. So you have to you have to prove that. And the issue is, as as we as you already discussed, especially CJ, the fact that the the councils, when the emperors called them, the church was just like, um, yeah, sure, okay, we'll come along. Um, and they praised it even. They praised the fact that, hey, we had this great holy council by by his sovereign, his great sovereign Constantine. Even even the synodal letter itself puts a good deal of praise on um, on Constantine, at least with how it titles him. Um, and so it's the anti-Sienas who have to. Uh, who have to actually answer answer the question? Where was the mass resistance to the emperors doing something as simple as calling a council for the church to sort out its own affairs? Again, not even him like stamping down saying accept this doctrine right now. No, no, no. Just just them calling councils and then enforcing the decision of that council for the peace of the church. Mm -hmm. The church just went along with that. 
And we yeah. can see why, at least in that one citation from Origin, others are out there, but it's a good one that exists because the worldview allowed for that already. It was primed for yeah. that. As soon as the emperor right. came in, as soon as an emperor was ready to come in and say, hey, church, I'm going to help you fix your stuff up, the church would be like, sure, glory to God. We have a righteous emperor for once. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. that's the only mm-hmm. way you can explain why it was quite a seamless and instant transition from pre-imperial to imperial church. Because I, I, it was not that separation of the state from religion. I, I love that because, um, you know, they have this attitude of we don't know how God is going to, uh, you know, we don't know how God wants to to use um, these political situations. And so, you know, they were patient and they waited. And when the time came, you can just you can just see these like autistic evangelicals saying, you know, we're, no, we're not going to talk to you. We're not going to use this platform that God has like given us right here to work out this um, extremely <laughs> difficult concept that's going to have bearing on the future of Christian, they don't think like that at all. Yeah. They just absolutely yeah. refuse categorically to contribute to anything within the public sphere. Whereas those mm-hmm. bishops, they said, you know, we couldn't have planned this. We didn't blueprint this, but this mm-hmm. is the means that God has given us. And so we're mm-hmm. going to um, trust in him and participate in yeah, the edict in this way. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I think, you know, to bring it to, <clears throat> you know, uh, to bring it to today, and the practical implications of all of this. I mean, I, I uh, yeah, I, I, I love what you're saying here, uh, you know, uh, both CJ and, and Paul, um, that the guys who are, are looking at this are, have such an anachronistic view, right? Right. They want to smuggle in this, this sort of Lockean individualism and, and classical liberalism into, into the fourth century, and those those are not any that's not anything i mean it, it works both ways those men could not conceptualize that worldview at all there, the, mm-hmm. it is nowhere near how they thought about anything and and the, the the same is true the other way around like when these guys look at history they cannot conceptualize a world in which okay the emperor has power and god uses it mm-hmm. uh for the good of the church mm-hmm. that that's not something they can even wrap their minds around in any way and mm-hmm. and so i mean it's it's so funny because it's like i you know none of them want to debate actually or or like interact with any of us um but i, I, I would just form Stephen wolf <laughs> yeah it's, it's very good accent uh uh they <laughs> uh they yeah they, they they don't want to debate it i mean because their their lunch would be uh, handed to them right uh, the second they do that uh, that that's why they're scared uh they know they've got nothing and and you know i mean if steven debated them he'd, he'd just destroy them i mean even if, is, even if someone is even if someone as lowly as me uh you know when i like i would you know I, I i like to think i'm armed with a little bit of historical knowledge to be i, I would to, like to I would be, shoot these guys up but i'd be um, praying that god would forgive that clear act of the sin of suicide <laughs> But you know, it's 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 it, they they don't they don't want to debate it. But if 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 there was ever an opportunity where I I did get to debate like Owen Strayan or or one of these guys, I would just ask like why you know do you, did your church ever read the the um the Nicene Creed in its service or do you do, do your church's documents ha- you know mm-hmm. have the the uh, Nicene Creed as one of its creedal statements? You mm-hmm. really should delete that because. Yeah. 
That's a that's a Christian nationalist uh, document. Oh, Andrew, you stole my Tolkien point. I have mine. Sorry, like you really, you should stop. Nice agreed. You shouldn't. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. he did this, and and that was state power. You can't do that. Um, you need to exactly you need to have a classically liberal formulation of church doctrine. Yeah, yeah. Um, we need to have a reasonable, rational debate and discussion, and make sure everybody <laughs> has a consent. In uh, yeah, shut up, Ben Shapiro. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that that is a principled anti-Christian nationalist. If they were at the time of Constantine, with um, actually, by the way, how long how long uh, can we go for? Because there's so much more, even with Theodosius, to talk about. But... <laughs> as, as much time as you've got, I don't know how much time Ooh. CJ has. Kane's uh, a Kane's a bean. Okay, it's almost probably. one a.m. I do not care. But <laughs> so Half what an hour. I don't realize is if you were to put an anti a principled anti-Christian nationalist back at the time of Constantine with the Council of Nicaea. Or Theodosius II with the Council of Constantinople 381, they would have to, in consistency, in consistency with their principles, ha- they would have to say, no church, don't do this. This is an imperial state thing on the church. It's imperial yeah. intrusion on the church. Let's not do this. Let's just do something totally separate of our own thing, even though we have none of us, even though none of our bishops in the church has the capital, uh, has the political capital, ecclesial political capital or the funds to actually get people, all these bishops to one location. Let's just all do our own thing and have a reasonable discussion. Just don't involve the state. You'd To be a principled anti-Christian nationalist, you would have to assert that position, that we should yeah. not have the, the Nicene Creed, that we should not have the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, which was then made the basis of the faith of the Roman Empire, where the Arians, and I, and I can read some sections from the Theodosian Code to show just how seriously this was taken, um, where... Uh, anti-Nicene bishops and priests and preachers or whatever were completely banned from preaching that heresy in the empire and as a secondary result uh, with respect to God using uh, secondary means saved countless souls who would never be exposed to Arian preaching a principal anti-Christian nationalist would have to say no my principle of no state intrusion on the affairs of the church is more important than countless souls being preserved from this blasphemous error. They have to say that. They have to. Yeah. Yeah, they would. I mean, um, one question I have, hopefully I'm not stealing any CJs here, but uh, is, you know, uh, think of like a modern analog here. So like, say um, a guy, a, 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 a charismatic, uh, powerful leader takes over America. Right. And it, so say, say Elon Musk uh, becomes the emperor of America and uh, right before he does, right, he converts to Christianity. He said, okay. you know, by this sign conquer, he becomes a Christian <laughs> and is serious about it. And um, and he wants to deal. He wants the church to have unity in, in America. And he wants to deal with the major controversies today, which are not over, you know, you know, minor things of, or, or even major things of doctrine um, necessarily. It's it's over. What is a man? What is a woman? What uh, can women be pastors? Uh, can are you pro gay? Like th- things like this. And he wants to straighten all these issues out. And at the end, the, the, he calls a council. All of the different groups. You know, you have all the the Baptists and and the Reformed. Okay, no Baptists. No Baptists. <laughs> no Baptist. <laughs> right. You have in, in America. You that's the way it is. Uh, and you have them. He gathers them all together, and they they meet and they say, nope, no women pastors, no pro gay stuff. Um, you know, no wokeism, all of that. 
and and then he enforces it and defrocks all of all of these people and and drives them out and now you have this doctrinal purity in the church and like so say that happens in the next 30 years right just for sake of argument um think about the anti-christian nationalists how they would freak out over something like that how they would say this is terrible we can't have anything like that that'd be awful and i i look at it and i'm like god uses means that's great that would be great yeah, yeah that would be well, a way to god that yeah. countless souls are being preserved from error being shoved in their face in the pulpit every sunday oh yeah. the horror orthodoxy oh the horror yeah yeah i know i mean that that's that's how I look at it. It's like, how could yeah. you, how could you possibly say that? And, but it's, it's, it's it because what CJ says. Yeah. Well, it's because, you know, we, the, the classical view is that God is a God of history, whereas mm -hmm. for them, God is a God of the classroom. And I think that's one of the differences is God can't yep. use public institutions. Uh, it's not that God can't use them, but they should oppose any tendency to, to look uh, for public orientation of religion in that way and they really don't yeah. like that they want to keep things in the ivory tower they want to keep things in the yeah. textbook and they want to keep things purely within the the realm of intellectual assent uh, whereas yeah. the classical view is that god works through institutions god works through historical development um even even a dialectic in some sense you could say that too um to use a, a very bad word <laughs> hopefully james <laughs> james Lindsay's not listening um but yeah Yelling, mommy. <laughs> but and this is the other thing about particularity too like one of the things that they don't understand is christian nationalism is not this like blueprint of like how of, of, of the perfect society it's the recognition that we live in um current year and we have to use current year tools in order to advance um the proclamation of of the gospel and the protection of the church absolutely absolutely amen and the and and the only response like really the key response that you always hear um from the anti-sans in such a scenario like if if uh, his holy, his holy eminence, Grand Emperor Elon Musk did this for the church <laughs> in thirty years or whatever. Their only, res their, their central response is is going to be something akin to chapter and verse, chapter and verse. Like right, we yeah, saw, right. Yeah. we saw the Owen. So, so it's pronounced Owen Strand, not Strachan. Like Strand, yeah, yeah. Strand, that is Welsh, maybe. I don't know. Uh. <laughs> in any case. <laughs> Oh, all these languages with tons of silent letters. Oh my God. It, it gives the French a run for their money. But anyway, um, what it, in his response on that panel he did with that um, with that other guy who had that disastrous blazer and jacket combo. I forgot his name. Um, the, the panel he did there um, with him, where he, he he quite literally said, "Well, where well, where does the Bible say?" that we have to preserve our nations yeah. and uh, we have to enforce the government law. And my favorite analogy, my favorite response to this awful hyper-biblicist hermeneutic, quote-unquote, if you can even grace it with the name hermeneutic, is just to say, good point, Owen Strand. By the way, where does the Bible tell you to wipe your bum after you take a dump? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Chapter and verse, Tron. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Chapter and verse, hey. mate. It's, it's, it's a political, yeah. it's just reality. It's not even a question of doctrine. Like, yes, obviously, if you're talking about a question of doctrine, that is obviously a chapter and verse moment. Like article six of the, of the 39 articles, which directly says, Holy scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation so that whatsoever um, is not found therein nor may be proved thereby shall not be re considered requisite or necessary to salvation. Right. That's the thing. That was what the Reformation was about. Specifically, yeah. for doctrines to be bound upon the whole church, you must find in the Bible, not yeah. 
if there is a proposition of reality, it must be found in the Bible. That is complete bull. Okay, yeah. even if it's something with respect to uh, with respect to the church's interaction with the world, we don't have a a laid out liturgy, even a, even a basic Baptist quote unquote liturgy in the Bible. We don't have any of that. We don't have a precise manual of how the church is to interact with X institution in Y scenario. We don't have that. We have a, we have a layout of principles that are sufficient for building those things, absolutely, and that's why mm -hmm. Christian nationalists do actually appeal to the Bible, contrary to what some are claiming, including myself. I'm actually I'm actually considering making that book that Stephen Wolf said someone should make a, a version of the case of Christian nationalism, but it's focused on the Bible. I'm thinking of actually doing that. Um, but uh, the the point is, those issues you do not need chapter and verse. It is literally just a matter of what are the principles we have both from nature and from revelation and what is the good and necessary consequence to use classical reform language mm. of those principles when applied to our situation now and to yeah. x topic y topic so on and so forth that is our argument you don't need you do not need chapter and verse it is good to preserve your nation or you must have the government obey divine law this is something that just follows deductively in my opinion yeah. from the principles of holy scripture um yeah. it's it's so that that is just an utterly silly argument. It, it, it falls yeah. part of the themes, and nobody in the early church, as as another evidential weight, not that the early church fathers are, are necessarily binding infallible authority, but they do. The more of them attest to something, it does add weight to something. And I can say with confidence, absolutely none of them have this chapter and verse um, ideology, where all the interactions of the church, everything it can do, all of our priorities, all the good things we have and know must be found chapter and verse in Holy Scripture. That was not the early church's argument, ever. Yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, you see it. Like, they, there was some, I can't remember which guy it was, one of one of these silly people um, who is like, oh, these, these Christian nationalists, they are denying sola scriptura, right? They're denying sola scriptura. They don't, they don't believe in sola scriptura anymore. And it's like, have you, have you ever read the reformers and how they, how they talked about sola scriptura? Like, you just defined exactly their view is that everything necessary pertaining to salvation has to come from scripture. Not this that is, um, every Brad, part of your life has to have a chapter and verse behind it. Brad, right? no, uh, no one thinks that way. Brad Littlejohn talks about this at length in his, in his stuff on hooker, yeah. um, because he talks about the fact that there was a transformation in Sola Scriptura because originally it, for Luther, especially it, it, it was a salvific, it was a soteriological mm -hmm. um, and it transformed into epistemological. And that's one of the modern contributions to that phrase. And the American, the Western evangelical instinct is very much epistemological. They can't, yeah. they can't process anything unless they have chapter and verse explicitly. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and this, I mean, you could see in their response to like wokeism and all of the insanity occurring right now, right. They, they struggle because they don't have categories to understand things unless they have a bible verse to back it up right so they can say well god created them man and, and woman right they can they can hold fast to, to that yeah. uh but they can't they can't deal with you know things like like ethnic issues and ethnic conflict um yeah. because they'll just they'll just say well galatians 328 and and they oh, use wow. that to to larp <laughs> this uh this globalist understanding of anthropology and and right. and so it is it's so much, it's so silly, um, all of it. And, you know, I, I'm glad you brought up, you know, to back up a little bit, um, that, that quote by Jewel, uh, because I, I think 
there is, I've, I've been preaching. I just finished preaching through first and second Samuel, eventually preached through first and second Kings. And there is a tremendous wealth of biblical resources to draw upon there to see the interaction between state and, mm-hmm. and church, you know, anachronistically speaking, of course. Oh, well, well, that, that, that was Israel and that's different. It doesn't apply. Yeah. Now, and that's always, that's crazy. always what they do. That's always yeah. what they do. But then you continue on into the Oikumene, right? Into these, um, the kingdoms that God has set up and mm-hmm. you have Nebuchadnezzar and you have uh, Darius and, um, and you have these emperors and mm-hmm. they're interacting with, the church, their interact, the, the, um, the the Persian emperor is is paying for the construction of the temple, just as David and Solomon did this, right? So you have this continuity between both the the state in Israel under the old covenant and these Gentile emperors. So there's there's no discontinuity there, and so you you apply that, and and then all of a sudden this, um this really pathetic cope argument of, well, no, that's the old covenant that we can't draw anything from that uh, falls apart because the same (laughs) principle is at play once Israel is in exile and they're no, they're no longer have a kingdom. And so, and and so you look at this, like, what does David do? Well, David organ, even before the temple, like David organizes uh, the liturgical um, structure of worship in Jerusalem, right? He, he actually introduces uh, liturgical music. He uh, composes, the Psalter, most of the Psalter for the church, but you, you also see, um, you, you also see the restrictions, right? Saul is not allowed to offer this sacrifice and is condemned because of it. You see the same thing, um, with, um, King Uzziah, right? He goes into the temple. He is not allowed to do that. And he's struck with leprosy because of it. Like there are clear delineations where this is not your authority. You cannot go beyond these bounds, but outside of that, you you have a duty to support and and uphold the church, yeah. and then you you look at the example of Josiah, right? He deals he deals with the idolatry of Israel and and enforces God's law against it. Um, and what is Constantine doing but that, right? Enforcing the edict of the church and and stamping out heresy. All right, um, that that's what that's what he's doing. And so you see you see all of this, and so you you look at the kind of the ancient mind. Um, and, and the, the way that they viewed the world, all of this fits with how they thought, right? The only, the only way you would look at it and, and get upset is if you have a a thoroughly modern view where Christianity is not a public religion, where it's merely a private individual one. And, and it's bound by the, these, this idea of, of classical liberalism and individualism. And that's not the world that most of humanity has ever existed in. And I, I think people, if they, if you have historical perspective, you see that that world is is collapsing, it's dying, right? Nobody wants to live that way because it yeah. doesn't work, and it's it's consuming us and destroying us, and it's destroying the church. Mm-hmm. And so, right, um, we're just ahead of the curve here, right? That's the reality. Mm-hmm. Like, like it's going this way, and there's nothing. Like they want to keep the old, you know, the wine in the in the old in the old wine skin, and they want to keep mm-hmm. everything all together, and. Yeah. It's not going to work. They're not going to be able to keep all of this together. The center cannot hold and things are falling apart. And, and so the future is, is understanding uh, Christianity in this context, in the context of, of the way of the world that God has established, yeah. right? That is, that's what this stuff is. And it, it's also interesting because like you have, you have many Presbyterians and reform people that are like anti-Christian nationalists too. 
And, and I think it's hilarious because it's like, well, who called the Westminster assembly, right? Like who called it? Uh, the parliament mm. did. Right? Yeah. Just like Nicaea. Like, so are you going to like yeah. reject the Westminster confessions because yeah. uh, the state was involved in some way there? Well, they do reject a lot of them. Yeah, Yeah, they do. That's true. Now, obviously, they'll they'll often give the reply like, yeah, we prefer it didn't happen that way, but like it it happened, we can't change it, and we at least have this good confession we're able to run by. So they can try to argue that. But the the, the problem actually still becomes, well, hang on a second, put yourself in that time period. There's this great confessional doctrine document, which you yourself hold to as the best expression of the word of God, the most faithful one out there. Um, if you were in that time period, would you consistently follow your own principles? And if you had the power, shut down that state meeting for the creation of, say, the Westminster Confession. Would you do that? Well, the the um, the the congregationalists would have the you know the oh, yeah. the, the Baptists yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. That's but why I said you don't invite Baptists to this council. No. <laughs> well. I actually, you know, I, I'm I'm interested in, um, you know, the, the the development of history after Constantine's, and mm-hmm. you know the, because because things didn't end with Constantine. In fact, it actually grew. You know, things grew beginning. stronger. Christian, this was the birthplace of Christendom. Um, yeah. So talk about a few, you know, the few centuries after Constantine and mm-hmm. how how things mm-hmm. expanded out from there. And, and maybe Absolutely. give a brief, you know, a brief rundown of Theodosius and mm-hmm. um, you know Constantinople and so forth. Yeah. Sure. So um, with Theodosius, so Constantine, he kind of spawned, you can maybe say, he kind of spawned like the embryo and the fetus of, of Christendom. Um, it, it, it was developing, it was there, but it wasn't quite there. Theodosius, um, that was the full birth, the proper birth of Christendom, not merely an imperially regulated and imperially guided church. But now, an, a a Christian imperium itself. That's when Theodosius he issues what's called the Edict of Thessalonica, which is preserved in Book Sixteen of the Theodosian Code, um, as is preserved today, um, which mandates Christianity and specifically Nicene Christianity as the religion of the empire. And the primary concern, um, well, secondarily, later in the code, you see regulations that. Uh, basically against all pagan sacrifices. And if people are caught in various circumstances, they can get various kinds of punishments, including up to capital punishment. Um, and uh, but, but before that, the main concern was basically stamping out the heretics. So with that edict, it, it reads, I've got the thing up here, thank God. Yes, I do. So <clears throat> the edict reads um, as follows, uh, or at least the, the, the main part of it, the beginning of, the, uh, of this section of the Theodosian Code. It says, um, so Emperors Gratian, Valentinian, and Theodosius Augustus's an edict to the people of the city of Constantinople. It is our will that all the peoples who are ruled by the administration of our clemency shall practice that religion which the divine Peter the Apostle transmitted to the Romans, as the religion which he introduced makes clear even unto this day. It is evident that this is the religion that is followed by the Pontiff Damasus and by Peter, Bishop of Alexandria, a man of apostolic sanctity. That is, according to the apostolic discipline and the evangelic doctrine, we believe in the single deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit under the concept of equal majesty and of the Holy Trinity. We command that those persons who follow this rule shall embrace the name of Catholic Christians. The rest, however, 
whom we adjudge, notice it's the emperors, we adjudge, demented and insane, shall sustain the infamy of heretical dogmas. Their meeting places shall not receive the names of churches, and they shall be smitten first by divine vengeance, and secondly, by the retribution of our own initiative, which we shall assume in accordance with the divine judgment. And so that goes very hard. I please, Emperor Elon Musk, just republish that. You don't even need to write anything to <laughs> Um, maybe add some extra stuff about women's priests and, and what have you, whatever. Um, but that that is the edict, uh, that, and, and it goes on. There's all, it says a lot more there. It goes into more particulars on the on the nature of this regulation. Um, and so that's Theodosius basically declaring, um, "This is Christian country, basically." Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and just 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 yeeting the pagans and the Aryans out of out of the places of worship. Um, yeah. The Church historian, which one was that? I think it was Sozomen, he, he records in more specific detail how Theodosius just forcefully dispossessed any remaining Aryans of their churches, kicked them out of the cities. They were completely banned from publicly professing their, their Aryan faith and so on and so forth. So this was very totalizing with Theodosius. He he um he is in the more immediate sense the the founder of Christendom, more so than Constantine with respect to its immediacy. Constantine laid the laid the groundwork. He established the categories and the possibility of this. Theodosius made it happen. Um, he, yeah. he really established the imperial religion. Uh, and this went along not just with bans against, uh, against Aryan religion, but also against pagan religion, which Title 10 of that same book of the Theodosian Code has all these regulations about if you find, if you, it, like, there's literally one section where it's like, if you find lightning strike this one temple, then go and investigate if a pagan sacrifice happened there or something. Or if you smell incense <laughs> at this at this at this temple, go and investigate. Or if you find someone doing a sacrifice in a field or what have you, pull them get get rid of them and all that jazz. And governors have to abide by this, 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 and that. And so um, Theodosius did create a totalizing legislation that Nicene Christianity is the religion of the empire. Um, it wasn't a matter of oh well, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna I'm just going to let the churches uh, make their make their little pamphlets to, to kind of give to people like, hey, consider the gospel and just convert <laughs> everyone by the heart. I'm just going to make sure it's all a heart conversion for everyone. Now, obviously, for our justification before God to really, truly be sons of God, not merely members of the church visible, but the church invisible, absolutely, right. that does require that personal assent on the individual level. Mm -hmm. However, yeah. public religion, public public truth is still a real and relevant matter. And so mm -hmm. Theodosius to make to to make the state, to make the world as he controlled it conducive to that end of the genuine conversion of people, he created a state where only that religion could be promulgated mm -hmm. um, and nothing else. And thus just just by common sense reasoning, um, maybe you'll have many people who aren't personally convinced and they're just like, oh, I want I want my cult of Apollo back. I miss it. Uh, Return to tradition, so on and so forth. <laughs> uh, so you, you have them, but then also it's also very common sense that you'll have people who are who are raised up where that's the only thing allowed to happen around them, and they'll just naturally adopt the Christian religion. To which, going by the wisdom of the Apostle Paul, even if someone is converted by a falsehood, and and by the way, he does explicitly deny the laicity of such, but even if someone's converted by falsehood, glory to God. So in this case, establishing these conditions. Um, that's what Theodosius did. The conditions where only the Christian religion is promoted in public life, 
which in turn is conducive to actual conversions of people. Yeah, um, people people misunderstand this. They say like, you know, they, they had gun to their heads and they had to convert. And you will convert now. Like, yeah. Like, or, yeah. or like, if or like if, if you're, if you're in your house and you're reading, you know, something that's like at odds, I, that's not, that's not their thinking. Their thinking is in terms of public declaration. Exactly. Their thinking is also in terms of what contributes to stability, public and political stability. Yeah. You know, what is a threat yeah. in a political mm -hmm. sense to order? Like that's that, those were their categories. It wasn't yeah. about, you know, gun to your head, convert exactly. right now. Convert Christ is die. Lord. Yeah. Christ is Lord. Say Fit. It. Exactly. Yeah, no, like that's, I mean, that's, that's the other thing too. Like as you're, as you're, you know, uh, elucidating these things, um, I just can't help but think like, uh, you know, trans, you know, get a DeLorean and transport the G3 guys back to, you know, the late fourth century as, as this is happening and, and their perspective. And I, I think I'm being fair. I don't think I'm, I'm caricaturing them. Their perspective would be no. We need to have religious liberty. They, you need to have pagan sacrifices going on. You need to allow this stuff happening. You need to have Aryans going around telling people this stuff, right? You need to have that. Otherwise, yeah, yeah, otherwise exactly. it's not sincere. It's not sincere. Yeah, it's not cool. like cultural Christianity is going to affect everything. Oh no! Yeah, that's, that's what they think. And when I think of when I think of Saddleback Church, I think of sincerity. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. Our conditions are not any different. It's the yeah. same. Like you, you have, and, and that's what's going on here. Like these guys, uh, these men in this day, they would not have any concept other than the, the Roman empire is going to have an official religion. It's mm -hmm. not going to not have one. Mm -hmm. Right. That's yeah. that. That's the thing you have to keep. Just in mind. like, just like we have an official religion today. Yes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. you know, worship of, of freaks. And, and so, uh, like that is, but that, like, that is, that's reality that they, in, in that context, the Roman empire is not going to have a, a, not have a public religion. It's going to have one. It's either going to be paganism or Aryan Christianity or Catholic Christianity. Like that is the matter at hand. Mm -hmm. And that's Absolutely. what, that's the conditions that Theodosius is reacting to is that, exactly. well, I'm a Christian. We're all, most of us are Christians now. This is our religion, and that is what we have to promulgate publicly, and, exactly. and uphold publicly. It's it's not exactly. that we're going to send the you know SPQR Gestapo and and hunt people down and as based and, as that would be. Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> right. We're not going to we're not going to do that. That it, model that. Yeah, that interpretation of things it actually just comes from the Enlightenment. It's Enlightenment propaganda. It's like Rousseau, exactly. who yeah. who 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 uh, explained. Yeah. Um, classical Christianity in that in that way. Yeah, congratulations, Owen Strahan. You agree with Rousseau. Uh, congrats, <laughs> yeah, man. exactly. <laughs> the the Theodosian Code. If you read it, it has a lot of the dreaded blasphemy laws. Oh no, protecting the name of Christ. We can't have that. Um, it has a lot of those, but it has nothing on provisions for thought police. It has nothing on. Right. Well, by the way, make sure you send some imperial guards. Uh, sorry, yeah. imperial guards uh, to everybody's house every so often. And they'll do the whole Padre Pio thing of say Christ is Lord right now. <laughs> that's right. As, again, as base as that would be, that's not in there. Because yeah. as you articulated well, Andrew, Pastor Andrew, um, there is the ancient and even just pre-21st, 20th century distinction between personal piety and public religion, public morality, public stability. Because even, even if, even if in a officially Christian state, 
there's a lot of insincere Christians and people who aren't Christian. Okay, sure, that's unfortunate. They're lost souls. They need to be reached. And of course, simply having imperial laws per se in and of itself is not going to convert people. Um, although, as I said, as I articulated earlier, it will make the conditions conducive to that because other influences are being stamped out. But putting that to the side, um, even that, even that is not entirely relevant because in the end, it is about the 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 reality of the as as the Catholics would put it, the social kingship of Christ. That is a real thing. Um, you anti anti Christian nationalists have to make utter mincemeat of the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, especially Christ's command or statement, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, um, go therefore and baptize all the nations, teaching them to follow my way, so on and so forth. And states are an essential constituent of nations. And this is coming right after Christ saying that he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And so even in a state that is made up of a lot of non-Christians, that state is still itself under the social kingship of Christ, and therefore yeah. it ought to be governed in accordance with those principles. There ought to be laws uh, against the things that we all grant, like murder, rape, and so on and so forth. Things which uh, things which are justified for us Christians in the same text, which tells us to punish homosexuality on the legal level um, in the Torah, which specifically says that that, among other sexual sins, was the reason why the land is vomiting out these other nations, because it's not a matter of just mere covenant Israel faithfulness, but it is an actual matter of genuine good versus evil. And so um, that Christian state under the social kingship of Christ that maintains that justice, that public justice, punishing evil and praising the good, that is still a good thing in and of itself, even if there is a large non-Christian contingent within that state because of that social kingship of Christ. And ultimately, everybody, including unbelievers, will benefit from that. And the West, yeah. the, the, the nature of Western civilization proves that. Okay? Right. Yeah. This that is, distinction, it's absolutely necessary. This is this is sort of your, your because you sent me the bullet points, and this is one of the last points that you wanted to make, is our entire society and civilization, and even, even the rights that we historically did enjoy, stemmed from imperial involvement in religion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. So talk yeah. about that a little bit, because I know I know Andrew has another recording soon. So maybe 15 more, you know, 10, 15 more minutes. Um, but let's let's end on that. Like the entire, you know, hegemonic context of the way we see the world stems from these activities mm -hmm. and these occurrences in the classical uh, European moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everything. And we discussed a little bit of this earlier. We're speaking of um, where Pastor Andrew brought up how, look, anti-Christian nationalists. And this is where I wanted to bring it up anti-Christian nationalists, they couldn't support projects like the Council of Nicaea or Council of Constantinople or the Westminster Assembly or what have you. They couldn't, they could not, they would in principle have to be opposed to these things. And if they had the power, would be obligated to stop them from happening um, because of their principles. And yet these things, practically speaking, yes, of course, sola scriptura. Thank you. Very cool. Um, <laughs> but in a practical real world sense, these other state-sponsored materials and conditions of civilization upon which the goodness that the church has exhibited throughout the centuries, even despite the bad, um, all of these are founded upon state projects, both from the Roman Empire, West, uh, unified, Western, Eastern, and the numerous other European and even external states 
um, that have existed afterward that were uh, fundamentally governed by the Christian religion, those massive missionary efforts, those early missionary efforts, um, were also made possible by the conditions produced by these states. Even the British Empire itself was one of the greatest missionary tools in human history. Let's be real, okay? Um, yeah. We can we can thank like the the existence of the absolutely based African contingent of the Anglican Communion, which has helped save the Communion writ large, and now mm -hmm. the chair of the Global Anglican Futures Conference, which is kind of carrying the the mantle, is chaired by the Anglican uh, Primate of uh, of Rwanda now. So Rwanda forever, boys. Um, and so that those are things that are all resultant from state projects over history. All these yeah. benefits, all these fruits that the anti-Christian nationalists take for granted and even praise, whether in their own lives or um, or in sermons or just enjoy passively without even thinking of it. Right. These are all the fruits of state projects. And that's not a bad thing. That is a good thing. Because again, let's just throw the chapter and verse thing back at them. Where does it say that any of this is wrong? Right. Where does any Bible yeah. verse say that the state cannot have involvement with the church and cannot be used as a tool for the promulgation of public Christian morality and even be a conducive tool for the spread of the gospel itself. Nothing in there says that at all. Um, nothing prohibits it. And everything is actually for it when you don't start yeah. from I mean, a false neutrality or a Baptist or not, not even necessarily Baptist. I know there's Baptists on our side, but um, yeah. nom nominalist, modernist, enlightenment worldview. Yeah. When you yeah, don't exactly. start from there, when you assume the ancient worldview and read the Holy Scriptures in that way, it's just intuitive, even if you don't have a direct yeah. chapter and verse that says, make states that follow Christian morality, or it's good to preserve your nation. You don't <laughs> need that. And the ancients didn't need that. They seamlessly adopted the imperial church precisely because that was conducive to their worldview in which the scriptures were written. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I think this is an important point because like, um, we need to emphasize the fact that that Christ came at a specific moment in history and the Greco-Roman philosophical ground bed of Christianity was of God's doing too. So the entire worldview yeah. of, of classical, um, you know, Europe and pre-Europe basically presupposed this worldview. And this yeah. is, you know, our own instincts are much more modern and mm -hmm. much more the result of an anti-Christian revolution. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and and even more to again to because I'm I'm also very emphatic on solo scriptura as well. And so I'm always anticipating that you can have these guys who say, Oh, well, they're just wrong and scripture is correct or whatever. We, we've challenged the how how crap that assumption is already. But just to go to scripture itself, uh, to emphasize that again, um the anti-Christian nationalists have to make absolute mincemeat of so much scripture in order to even yeah. attempt to understand it. Scriptures like the nations will all come to Zion and they'll be judged by God. They have to do this. They have to basically throw out some quasi dispy. Oh well, that's just at the very end of the eschaton. And yeah, you yeah, look yeah. at Romans thirteen, <laughs> where it says the state punishes good and praises evil, and you just simply look good and evil in the Bible is defined by God and includes things yeah. which secularism considers uh, the opposite. And then they they just say, oh well, it just means or it just means this uh, natural natural law, uh, escondido to kingdom theology, a concession of natural answers. <laughs> You have to do that. And then you have to read the, the Great Commission. All authority has been given in heaven and on earth. Oh, well, well, okay, not all authority. Well, okay, no, God has been given all authority, but he only says that we're just to do the pietistic personal preaching to the people. We're not actually supposed to be baptizing the nations. I, I had that argument with someone on, on Twitter. I refuse to call it X. I had that argument <laughs> with someone on Twitter not too long ago. Um, and I think it was on this very issue where 
they, I, I just straight up quoted, we are to baptize the nations. Now, yes, phenomenologically, this does happen by baptizing individuals, but there is the significance of a collective worldview, the idea that nations are whole units and entities mm-hmm. um, that are, in some sense, baptized collectively. That includes the state. Therefore, the state ought to follow the precepts of God. And now just straight up had this guy who couldn't process that and just said, no, we don't baptize nations. We don't baptize nations. We baptize individuals. Because they're and nominalists, I, yeah. Yeah, yeah, complete nominalist, a complete if, nominalist individualist. Um, if Jesus wanted to say that, he could have just yeah, said, exactly. go into all the nations and baptize individuals exactly, in yeah. the nations. And then, right? and, and then, of course, even Psalm, Psalm 2, where I commented from um, from uh, Theodore's commentary, why doth the heathen rage? Why do the nations plot in, va- in vain? And then the command, all the nations submit to submit to God, basically, kiss the sun, lest he be angry. They have to, we just take that at face value. Yeah, all nations for all time, Submit to God, lest he be angry, lest he visits judgment upon you, yeah. whether in this life or in the next. Um, but then they just have to say, oh, well, well, yeah, we, that, that, that might have been true for then, like at, at this artificial <laughs> time period that I just draw a magic curtain over. Yeah. It's not relevant now because reasons. They have to make, those are just a few representative passages. They have to make utter yeah. mincemeat yeah. of the Holy Scripture. Show the greatest disrespect to Holy Scripture through their very much post-Enlightenment worldview. And honestly, from the little I've seen, it, 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 this would even go beyond what many Enlightenment figures would think. They still had, yeah. as far as I'm aware, they had a concept of, of nation to some degree and they weren't <laughs> that hyper-individualist as the G3 blokes and others are. Um, and so, yeah, they have to utterly make, they have to make paper mache out of the Holy Scriptures in order to actually understand it in their hyper-individualist, pietistic, anti-Christian state framework. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, I've, I've noticed, I've been in many of the similar type arguments and, and I, you know, I just don't know how you um, persuade people that are um, so uh, married to this individualistic framework, right? I, I just don't think, I, I don't know if you can get them to step outside themselves and, and see that it exists that, that an entire way of viewing the world uh, predates them and predates really, you know, 1789 and, and is what the majority of Christians have always thought. Right. I don't, I don't know how you do that. <laughs> I'm, I'm at a loss. You know, I think it's like, well, you just persuade the people that, that are open to it. And, and I, I think as, you know, events unfold, as, as things come apart, um, more and more people will see how, liberalism does 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 not work and it, it's it, and will become more open to alternative explanations that and historical explanations of of these ideas um but you know i i think um as we're you know wrapping up here uh what uh if if you were going to you know make this this argument you had you know just a few moments in an elevator with one of these guys um <laughs> yeah, you know, where would you, where would you go with mm-hmm. with this? I mean, would you would you go, immediately go to Nicaea um, and and you know the history of the church, history of Christendom, mm-hmm. and try to explain it, um, and 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 get them to just say all of that was a mistake, everything was wrong until until the twentieth century. Like, where where do you go with these these people? Yeah, sorry, just a few moments in the elevator because there is so much to cover. Um, so you basically, yeah. I basically have to go to the root and just hope, kind of like Inception, they plant the little seed idea and it just grows yeah. out from there. Um, 
the root I would plan in that elevator would just basically be don't assume your do not take for granted your moral, theological, and metaphysical presuppositions um, in reading the Holy Scriptures and in reading the early church or just history in general. Take a step back, take that historical perspective, survey the history of the church. Don't just take every opinion for granted, obviously not, but mm-hmm. survey why the earliest Christians said what they did. What, what was their worldview? How did they view the nature of peoples as collectives uh, of the state, what the state did, the role of the state? Um, how, how did the ancient worldview in general take a look at these things, the different views and perhaps their common, their, their, their common shared features as well? And then take a look at the scriptures in light of this pan-ancient worldview and considering that light and just don't take for granted your um, Lockean individualistic reading. Like you got to actually take notice that these things that you hold for granted, they are actually particular ideas. They are presuppositions. They are not a default. So identify them, draw definitions around them, put them to the side, and then just read the Holy Scriptures in that ancient context, read those ancient authors in that ancient context and just take on that worldview, read scripture in light of that, and then just see how much you're missing out on basically. <laughs> well, very good. I'll probably uh, like three elevator trips, but yeah. <laughs> He's like, I'm taking, I'm taking this. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I'm never, I'm never going in an elevator again. <laughs> They're all going to avoid elevators. Well, you need chapter and verse to avoid elevators. Uh <laughs> <laughs> well, um, any, anything else to add, CJ, uh, before we wrap up here? Um, I don't think so. I think that was a good discussion, and it's fascinating how timely it is um, because, to to be quite frank, Christendom was born out of a time of political chaos, and there mm-hmm. needed to be a new center for organization, uh, a new anchor for a, a new order. And, you know, we're experiencing our own. It's not chaotic uh, as bad as it was then, but I, I do think that's coming. I mean, liberalism, the, the yeah. explosion of liberalism is going mm-hmm. to leave a bloody mess, but we need to start having these conversations um, because we can't return um, to 10 years prior to the collapse. We need to really look deep in history and realize where we came from and uh, how that guides us going forward. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. No other way to put it. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. excellent. Well, I think that will do it for us this week. Uh, hopefully, uh, we can have you on again uh, soon, uh, the other Paul, and discuss Maybe. more of this stuff. Because there is, uh, I think we just barely scratched uh, the surface. I mean, we could we could delve in even deeper. I mean, Actually, there's so I, much history. Me, yeah. I want to sneak in one more question real quick. Do you have okay, any rec- go ahead. recommended books for this time period? Oh, mate. I mean, you're going to have to. You can, <laughs> I can recommend entire libraries for that time period if you want. Do it. Um, if you want to narrow it down, well, okay. Go if to any, the, if uh, any come to mind. Okay. So if you want things on particular, so maybe like a good Constantine biography. So I'm just looking at my shelf right now. Uh, the David Potter biography on Constantine, that's a, that's a good one. Very easy to read. Um, I also have right next to that uh, Rowan Williams biography of Arius, Heresy and Tradition. That's a, that's a good one too. Um, general histories of the church, really. Stuff like the, the uh, Philip Schaefe history of the church. Mm-hmm. Eight, eight, eight volume set, which you can find online for free at the Christian Classics Ethereal Library. Um, and that's the same Shafe who edited the um, Antonicene and Post-Nicene mm. Fathers collection, which is like standard English used by laymen today yeah. um, uh, with those church fathers. So the great volume, very comprehensive look at the history of the church, gives you that real pan 
um, ancient church perspective. Um, whew, far out. Oh, also, also good is the book by Lewis Ayres. Um, Lewis Ayres, what's it called again? Uh, Nicaea and its Legacy, um, which covers, well, the Council of Nicaea and how, how did it affect the discussions between it and Constantinople, and I think maybe after. It especially covers a lot of lesser-known councils that occurred between Nicaea and Constantinople, including Arian and semi-Arian councils that occurred too, because there, there was a lot of those. Um, and so that does give the real perspective of like just how involved this was, like how tense this was, how many councils were being called, how, how involved the emperors, even, even before Theodosius, how involved they were being too. Um, even, even before Christianity was the official religion, they were thinking, even back with Constantine, like, hey, you're bad, you're condemned by this council, you're exiled now. Um, so that's a good book too. Sorry, there, there is honestly like, it's impossible to be exhausted. With it. But yeah, those, those, those are good ones. Okay. Any good general history of the church, um, anything that particularly looks at the roles of emperors, the lives of Christian Roman emperors, and the nature of ecclesial politics, especially as it interacts with the Roman state, those will, those will do you good. Good. All right, Andrew. I I know you have a uh, other things to do, so I oh, we'll... that's okay. I wish I could stay longer. I wish we could do this for four hours, but uh, maybe yeah. maybe next time. Uh, but Dang, yeah, I, that... wish gone, I wish we could have gone until I have to wake up because it's one forty-three a.m. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, on that note, uh, thank you so much, Paul. Yes. Especially uh, with the time difference and, and how late mm -hmm. it is there, we really appreciate uh, you coming on and, and giving your perspective and 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 giving us all the historical info and just the wealth of, of knowledge that you have. Uh, and thanks to you, CJ, uh, like always. Uh, and for all of us here, thank you, the listener for uh, and viewer for uh, watching this, listening to this, and please like, subscribe, share it. Uh, this is going to be a useful resource, I think, for a lot of people to, to get out there. So definitely share this one. And uh, for all of us here, we will have um, or we'll be back, uh, Lord willing, uh, unless World War III breaks out. Uh, so uh, we'll we'll see you all next week. Have a good one.